is the Colonel Rad Alert. Civil defense information will be broadcast at 640. West of the Rockies, you're on the air. Hello. Y2K. How can we prepare? Stop a few of their machines and radios. Throw them into darkness for a few hours. We are fighting for our lives. My family must survive. Boom. For five years. Thousand gallons of gas. Air filtration. Water filtration. Coming at you from the frozen tundra that is East Central Alberta, Canada. Streaming live on YouTube, Twitter, Twitch, Rumble, Odyssey, and Facebook. Welcome back to the workshop where we create community, find freedom, promote preparedness, and share success. I am Toolman Tim. Today is June the 7th, 2023. This is episode 320 of Workshop Radio. Guys, in a minute, I got a good one for you. We have, uh, I am really excited two things, the power of community and communication set me up with this cool gentleman. And I managed to find another incredible Canuck to come on and for you guys to make fun of how we talk. So it's going to be great. Hang in there. He's an awesome dude. We'll get the announcements out of the way. And then I'll bring Jeff Donaldson from Preparedness Labs on. So number one, guys, if you're looking for a whole home surge protector, lightning arrester, um, Guys, I got to tell you, I did all my research on EMP Shield and the name, to be absolutely honest, made me a little nervous when I first started with them. But no matter what you think about all the EMP things, if you're looking for whole home protection with an insurance guarantee, EMP Shield's incredible. I've got one installed on my panel. And if you want to save 50 bucks, grab the link in the description today. Number two, if you're looking to support what we do, I can't show you this month's patch yet because only a few people have got it. But as soon as it shows up, you guys, we'll, we'll do an unveiling. I'm pretty excited. Aaron messaged me the other night and said how great she loved it. Anyway, so it's a great way. 10 bucks a month, $100 a year, and you get a cool two by three Velcro morale patch. Usually they're a little funny, sometimes politically incorrect. And um, it's a great way to support what I do and a great way to get something cool in the mail every single month. And finally, guys, I'm going to drag each and every one of you kicking and screaming over to Telegram. So if you're not on Telegram and you're like, I don't need another place to hang out. I'm telling you, it is our place. It's where the workshop delinquents hang out. So come by Telegram. You will not be disappointed. Every single time I say this, one more person comes over like, yep, this is the place to hang out. It's where all the cool kids are. And really what it is, is where we, you know, give each other a uh, kick in the butt. And Chris Dixon just asked if his his patch got lost. No, it was sent out uh, Friday from Canada. (laughs) The stuff from Canada goes slower than the stuff I sent on Thursday from um, the United States. So there's that. So with that, guys, let's bring on my fellow Canadian brother. Give me one sec. Hey, Jeff, how are you, brother? Fantastic. Thanks for the invite. Ah, I am excited. I, like I said, um, one of our missions around here is to bring together a ton of different kind of disparate preparedness communities from all around the world. And I was really excited when our mutual acquaintance, George, from uh, Last Host Standings, like, hey, there's this crazy Canuck. He's so Canadian that his handle on Instagram is my canoe head or canoe head, something like that. And I'm like, oh, I got to check this out. And you've got, what, well over, are you, are you at 200 episodes for your podcast yet? Uh, the, it, it's inside my canoe head and it's at Thank 182 you. right now. You're getting close. Cool. Yes, so I am. Tell us who, who in the world is Jeff Donaldson? I, 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 I intentionally didn't look into your story a lot because I really love learning about people on the show. So fill me in brother. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm an East coaster at heart. 
uh, as we get going, you might uh, hear a couple of phrases come out that uh, will give that away. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Exactly. Um, From Blue Noser through and through. Um, Where? Where? Hang on. We got to stop here. I'm from Digby. Well, I I, happen to spend some considerable time near there in a little place called CFRC Cornwallis. Of course you did, because you're ex-military and you've been in Nova Scotia. My dad worked at this is my dad worked in the grossateria at the Canex there yeah. uh, in the yeah in the meat department in the early to mid '80s, so probably before your time. But that is really cool. <laughs> so I mean that's 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 fantastic. Where the story starts off with, I joined the army when I was uh, 20 years old out of Halifax, and the standing joke for anybody out there is, I once got asked why he didn't join the navy. Cause you know, I grew up in the East coast and I'm saying, well, you know, I got up every day, watch the ships go out and get towed back in, watch them go out and get towed back in. Oh, I thought I joined the army to go see the world. <laughs> Those in the army, you'll get it. Those in the Navy, uh, you'll get it too. Cause it's true. But um, no, I just, I, I took off to join the army uh, and chase after the world in uh, 1991 to date myself. And so you were just after the Gulf war then, were you? Yeah. 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 Just, just after Gulf war one, Okay. Um, is when I joined and went through uh, Cornwallis and then ended up doing a complete run of the country and 28 years. And I retired in 2019. Wow. You re- so you, oh, so you just missed the Gulf War. You went through 9 11 yep. uh, and all the fun after that. Um, re- so did you do some deployments? Yeah, I did two tours in Afghanistan. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, you can talk as little or, you know, how, how did they, how did they go? I always, I don't, that's like asking a firefighter if he's keeping busy. You know what I mean? I, I don't like to do that, but how, you know, fire like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. So came out the other side, you know, things. Okay. Or yeah, absolutely. You, yeah. I mean, in 2007 was the, what we refer to as the run and gun show. So yep. it was the, the combat operations in the Southern part of the country. And 2012 uh, was the training mission. Um, up north in Kabul. And that's actually where preparedness kicks off, believe it or not. That's where the journey to preparedness started. So I'm sitting on, you've probably never been to Kabul, Afghanistan, but imagine an American camp built for a thousand people that has 4,500 people on it, right? So you can't go around the corner to change your mind, right? There's no privacy anywhere. Sure. Except my tiny little box of an accommodation, which was an eight by 10 foot box that I lived in. (laughs) for uh nine months a little over nine months and uh i just think like what do i want to do next and the army's plan for me was to fly a cubicle you know fly a desk i'm not that type of guy spent my whole life as an outdoorsman um i have no desire to sit in a cubicle nine to five for another 20 years so i was trying to figure out what to do and the job that i had there had me interacting with a whole bunch of humanitarian agencies looking at how we were Uh, Not just from the NATO mission side doing the playing whack-a-mole with the bad guys around the country, but how we were helping to build capacity in the country to deal with natural disasters. Oh, okay. Somehow, by hook or by crook, I got spun down that alleyway in in a line of business while I was there. And after spending, you know, a couple of months hanging out with a whole bunch of people in the humanitarian space, um... I decided to take, uh, I did my master's degree in disaster and emergency management at Royal Roads in, uh, in BC. 
Okay. The army wanted me to go study war and Klaus switch and all this other stuff. And I had no interest in, you know, studying that kind of thing. So that took me in that direction. So I started the formal academic side of it uh, about a dozen years. So I've been in studying and living and working in the preparedness side for about a dozen years now. Okay. And so, so yeah. yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just going to say, and then, um, my exit strategy from the army was to, uh, I started my PhD in 2017. So I actually wrote my PhD dissertation on emergency preparedness, uh, at the community level. So really? the is that this communication piece, so the difference between what the community wants the public sector to do for them and what the public sector thinks its role is to help the community prepare for and respond during an emergency. And there's a, there's a gap. Yeah, there is. Between, well, it's the expectation management, right? What you think your town should be able to do for you is a heck of a lot smaller than their actual capacity. And that's where we have, you know, pardon the reference, but Karen's on TV losing it when their power yeah. back on 10 minutes later, because they have this expectation that, of this massive state capacity that doesn't exist. So, yeah. And then that's, um, and I was studying that for a while at like two or three years and uh, nobody cared, right? Nobody right. really cares about preparedness into our emergency management until this little fella from China came over and right. dropped around and uh, kind of locked down the world in 2020. Yeah, that was fun. Well, Not really. yeah. all of a sudden people were interested in what I was doing, and what I was studying. And all of a sudden you went from, trying to get some knocking on doors, trying to get people to pay attention to you because you were passionate about what you were doing, but nobody was interested. Sure. To trying to field all of the questions from everybody who all of a sudden was now interested in pandemic preparedness. Quick question. Is your yeah. dissertation available? Yeah, it is. It's available through library and archives, Canada. I can okay. flip you the link to yep. it. I would love on. to read it. So, Okay, so I've been, this is cool. And this is why I love sometimes these um, open-ended conversations. Because Okay, so I've been doing a, a series on the history of preparedness. So yes. doing the decade by decade, basically from the 30s up. And of course, the civil defense era was very much a bottom up, uh, you know, like local community, build your shelters, you know, have these local bands of people looking forward to fixing it right and then we've kind of moved into the fema end of things which is definitely a and, and of course we're talking american you know I, it's, it's hard to talk canadian you probably have a way better knowledge of it but for me i've kind of researched the american so with a top down today what are the so this is your expertise so i'm just going to pick your brain what are the what are the uh, benefits of top down versus bottom up and are we doing it better or worse than we were so it, it, it's, it's a whole societal change that we kind of went through because we had a sense of personal responsibility and, and individual responsibility in the 60s and 70s, right? Because yeah. like you're right, the civil defense era really changed when, um, and I'm forgetting that there was an operation in Calgary done where they evacuated the Northeast Quadrant of Calgary to rural Alberta as an exercise in a nuclear response. Because at the time, wow. we knew the Russian bombers were coming Right. The name escapes me, but uh, That's okay. it's in my dissertation. But the Russian bombers, we used to get six hours notice. So there right. actually was a plan to evacuate Calgary and the northeast corner quadrant was exercised 
uh, as part of civil defense. And they did a full evacuation. People left their homes down the roads. The communities were designated as reception areas. You knew where you were going. They set up field kitchens and accommodations. And they actually practiced the evacuation of a major Canadian city in response. Where that all changed is when the ICBM was created. Now you have right. minutes. There's no point. That's where civil defense really, really changed because you oh. couldn't escape the city in response to a warning. By time the heads of state got warned and by time this goes down through the filter till the sirens sounding in the town, all that you had to do was exactly what you said. Now the government reorientated us to this is how you build a shelter in your basement, right? Right. That's why the bomb shelters in the basements became a thing uh, in the 70s and 80s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, because your threat was 20 minutes away. All you could hope to do was get into your basement and grab a few things. And huh. so that changed towards that. And then really in about the 1980s, to very early 90s, kind of right along the lines of the end of the Cold War is when, you, or not the end of the Cold War, but the Berlin Wall falling and the kind yeah. of collapse of yeah. Soviet Union is when you started to see civil defense transform to modern day emergency management. Hmm. Because the civil defense's raison d'etre, the only reason they're there or they were there was to do just that, was to educate and support the population to be ready for the number one singular threat that everybody was worried about, right? Which was nuclear ICBM attack. And then when that quote unquote, and I use air quotes, yes, sure. away, right? Um, it started to work into natural disasters. And the link to that is, is I'm going to date myself here, but I was in high school in 1987, 1986, okay. 1987 when the first Ethiopian famine was broadcast on the news. Right. So the world never saw it before. The Vietnam War was the first time real-time war ended up in the living rooms of Americans. The famine in Ethiopia in the late 80s was the first time that a natural disaster showed up into the, the uh, televisions in the living rooms of North America. And that was the big concert, wasn't it? Didn't, isn't that what spurred yes. on... Yes, yep. Live uh, Aid, Band-Aid. Yes. Um, all those were coming out of us now being exposed to seeing, you know, tens of thousands of innocent people starving to death when we're throwing out half our Big Mac we don't want. And Fair. until that 10, we didn't see that people could suffer. And then you started to see the increased um, work in the emergency management side. So there's a really neat, linear transition uh between the politics and civil defense to emergency management it's uh there's there's one there's uh one individual at carlton university where i did my phd he wrote his dissertation on um in the history department on the history of civil defense in canada really yeah if oh. if, if you remind me i can flip you the the yeah. link I can't oh, I'm going to geek out. That's okay. Yeah, this is oh, cool. But I, yeah, I love to geek yeah. out. You're talking to a nerd here. Right? So. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Two Canadian nerds. That both, yeah, I, mean, I grew up in Nova Scotia. What are the chances? So. Well, I, 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 just, I just like to answer the question, why? Right. You know, I just like to answer the question, like, why? in preparedness, you know, why do you tell people to do something? 
Is it just because you heard it? Is it because your government's telling you it's a good idea? Is it because 15 preppers say it's a good idea? Well, what's the evidence that tells you that this is a good thing to tell people to do? Is that the genesis of preparedness labs? That's what we do. It's a, I started that in, uh, actually that and Inside My Canoe Head started in April of 2020. So real quick about Canoe Head. Yeah. I'm thinking it was just, I need to guess. Chris thinks it's red green. I think it was either Air Force or 22 hour, 22 minute. What, what, where did that come from? I, there's a good debate whether it's red green or Air Force. Oh, there. Oh, okay. Right? We're not sure. Well, there, or, there's, there's Mr. Canoe Head um, okay. that was on Red Green and it was on Air Force. The guy gets hit carrying the canoe because yes, they were all the big old uh, silver spring box canoes, right? Yep. Um, and the guy gets hit by lightning, so it gets fused to his head, aka Mr. Canoe Head, right? Right. Um, I'm a backcountry paddler. That's what I've. That's my outdoor passion. I've been doing it for 40 years. So okay. it's actually my daughter-in-law who came up with the name inside my canoe head because I wanted it to be a quintessential Canadian handle. Yes. Um, oh, it definitely is. Social, well, the social media brand, which is what inside my canoe head is now. I mean, it's across all your socials. It's the name of the podcast. Um, it's my free education piece that I, that, that I'm putting out for everybody to try to just provide some research based evidence based information on emergency preparedness. So I do that through the inside my canoe head social media handle preparedness labs incorporated is a research and education firm. So it's, it's like you own companies, right? It's a company that I established. It's a Canadian firm. Sure. And uh, so we do, I half the time I do research into emergency preparedness. And okay. then I use the findings of that research to inform the education piece. There can't be many people doing this, are there? At least in Canada that I know of, or there's there's um, there's no one. That's what but, I kind of thought. Well, well, it's that thing. Like I'm the only one doing it right now, so I'm either really really smart or nobody cares, and I'm not sure where it's going to end up on either one of those. But I I research um, specifically the communications that the government sends out. Right. So okay. Think about your. Um, your standard public safety Canada. We just had emergency preparedness week in May. Uh, I've spoken at length to the people in the government of Alberta that, that run the emergency preparedness communication program for the government of Alberta. And they're actually, you're fortunate. They're, they're, they're the best in the country. They literally That's are good to know are, without a doubt. I've got a number of friends who work in the Alberta emergency management agency and they're, uh, they're incredible individuals, but they tell you to do certain things. Right. 72 hours type thing, right? Oh, the 72 hour emergency kit. And, and I don't, there are a lot of great people making kits and selling kits. So I don't want to come off as a, <laughs> it's okay dude. here. Yep. But there's no evidence anywhere on the face of this earth that a single human being has had a better post event outcome because they possessed and utilized the 72 hour kit. There's no <laughs> and, evidence. And you're the, you, you are the expert on this. Well, now, set that aside and say, okay, well, it's logical that a crank radio is going to help you. Some food is a good, is never a bad idea. A first aid kit. Absolutely. But it is sold to you by the government as this is how you become prepared. Right. What I'm saying is you have no evidence to make that statement because if we, if we can agree that 
Preparedness is about improving post-event outcomes. Right. That's all the things that you and I talk about and all the prepper community talks about doing all these things we do in times of peace and calm is all about having a better post-event outcome. 100%. So why aren't we telling people to do things that actually ha that actually has been shown to lead to post-event outcomes? And that's why I asked the question, like, why are you telling people to do this? Because while it's not a bad idea, you're giving them the false sense of security that if I want to be prepared, I need to get a 72 hour um, kit and bammo, we're, we're, we're good to go. I'm a prepared individual. I'm ready to take on the world and all the calamities. And you and I know that's, that's almost dangerous. Yes. It actually reminds me a little bit of some of the civil defense mindset from the sixties, because it reading between the lines, some of it was just designed as busy work because they knew that the cities would probably be hooped or at least in some serious trouble yeah. at the time. Yeah. So, okay. So this, this leads, of course. So if, pardon my French, of course, but if the 72 hour thing is bullshit, um, what, what has your research said is a proper degree of preparedness or a proper aspect to have the better outcome on the other end? So um, 14 days. That's the short one. Now, the science behind 14 days is that Ooh, if we think of the modern society, right? Like 80%, 90% of us live in cities. So if you think the mass majority of people live in urban areas, right? So yes. if you think of the modern, urban, ultra-connected, high-speed, low-drag, modern city, right? It's supported by the, the 10 sectors of critical infrastructure, in America, there's 16. Canada calls it 10. We're just Canadians. We need to be different, right? <laughs> Energy, utilities, government, transportation, health, safety, the food system, the water distribution system. All of these, if you visualize it, and this is what we try to do uh, in my work, is visualize the city as sitting on top of your dining room table. Okay. And below the dining room table are 10 legs. And each one of those legs represents an element of critical infrastructure that just keeps it going, right? Because every day you get up, and you make this massive assumption that everything's going to work. This internet worked. Your mic works. You flush the toilet and it goes. You turned on the light and it works. You opened up your cell phone and the internet was there. We make an incredible number of assumptions about our modern connected society. So when disruptions and emergencies happen, it's because one of those 10 sectors of critical infrastructure fails. Fair. Yeah. For some period of time. Our the social contract we have with, with government, no matter what your political stripe is, is that okay. we give them taxes and they're supposed to give us services. I know that's not what it's looking like lately, but anyhow, that's the idea behind it, right? So sure. you, you and I don't resurrect the water distribution system in a town. Right. Public's, public Works does that. So the research we've done shows that 97% of the time Critical okay. infrastructure is resurrected in 14 days. Ha. Huh. So, so there's your, yeah, that, that's the, that's what I mean about evidence based recommendations is that you're not covered for the 3% outliers, but that 3% represents catastrophic total destruction. 
like Dude. more Oklahoma tornado goes through. Like, yeah. we're not getting the water back on because the water plant doesn't exist anymore. That type of thing, right? But for 97% of the calamities that have happened in North America, and we just did a sampling, of course, we don't look at them all because statistically that is way too much information. Sure. But approximately 97% of the time, all of those table legs are back up and working in 14 days. So if an individual is prepared to shelter in place in their home with the people that they love and care for, provide them their basic animalistic requirements, food, water, shelter, health, safety, security for 14 days, they're going to make it out of it unscathed 97% of the time. Which puts you ahead of, I'm guessing, I don't want to say 97% of the rest of the population, but I'll bet you at least 80 or 90. It's pretty close. And so when I kind of uh, make up the list of the five types of preparedness, prepared people that I put in my, uh, in some of the blogs that I write in, uh, in, in the podcast episodes, the first one is blissfully unaware. Right. And people who just wander around life and have no idea about risk hazard or nothing. Right. Yeah. We see them all the time. Sure. Um, then, then the, the next stage is you have your government dependent 72 hour folks. These okay. are the people who have drank the Kool-Aid as we like to say, and, and bought the shop and they've got their 72 hour kit. And after that, they're, they're, they're hooped. They're in trouble because they expect the magical government to fix everything in 72 hours. And then the middle rank that we talk about is basically the target audience for inside my canoe head and our research is the prepared individual. So okay. that's person aim for at least 14 days and as accepted personal responsibility for their outcomes, et cetera. Those are tough words right there personal responsibility but what we'll, we'll sorry we'll talk oh, we'll about get that. there well, well, yeah, I do. Want to. i'm geeking out this is great keep right? going man but the the last two levels are your prepper and your survivalist oh right and so the prepper as i define it based upon research and i know people who call themselves preppers have a different definition sure as to what a prepper is but based upon the academic nerds out there a prepper is an individual who is capable of sheltering in place for longer than 14 days okay, and has the ability to at least temporarily, if not permanently, replace lost critical infrastructure. So huh. if you think utilities, water, food systems. So a prepper is somebody who's not just able to shelter in place for a short period of time, but they've taken the steps to be able to at least temporarily or permanently replace the power grid, water systems, food supply, telecommunications. So the, the, the prepper has the ham radio operator to replace his communication. He's got a set of solar panels and a lithium power generator, um, solar generator. They've got some access to or direct control over some sort of food system, you know, gardens, chickens, hunters, fish, whatever it may be. And so that's, because a prepper believes, and again, this is just based on research. This isn't a, a certified definition, but it just, a prepper is somebody who believes that um, there is a like a reasonable likelihood of some type of societal collapse, but that society sure. will come back. It right. just won't do so in a hurry or right. in the same manner in which it was prior to a collapse. And then the survivalist just takes you out to the other end. 
that's that's the individual who believes that we are facing an imminent um, societal collapse and that it won't come back and we're going to revert to tribalism. And in the history of humanity, how often has that happened? Oh, about every 10 years, but about every 80 years, actually. Really? In, in modern, can you, can you elaborate? Yeah. yeah. So in modern history, we're living in it right now. If people ask, you know, why is the 2020 so disruptive? Well, there's a good theory. I wouldn't call it the definitive answer, but there's a good theory that, um, and Ray Dalio talks about this and a couple of other uh, big thinkers, Peter Zion as well, talk about how we are in the decade of disruption. So about, about every 80 years, humanity reorientates the global order, right? So, so if you take herding thing. Yeah. So if you take it back to the 1400s in the Dutch and then walk it forward about every 80 years, we start doing dumb stuff all over again. Dumb shit, right? Yeah. Um, we're in the we're in that decade, and it's largely because the theory is based upon the the last horrible thing that we did as humanity was the Second World War, right? Right. Hundreds of millions of people killed. Absolutely horrible. Everybody who was in that or was alive when it was that happened, they're all dead. There's nobody here to tell us what that looks like, what it feels like, what our decisions are leading to. So this is why you see a lot of theorists say we're back. The 2020s is the 1930s all over again. The world is reorientating, it's reorganizing, it's rejigging. I mean, I'm not saying the Americans are going to collapse in the China. No, no, I know. I understand. But yeah, We're in a decade where everybody in the world is reorganizing and rejockeying for positioning as to what it'll look like for the next 70 or 80 years. And so humanity's done this at about every 80 years, all the way back to the 1400s. It's just, that's why 2020s are as disruptive as they are. And they will continue to be. I mean, this is just, we're just getting started. You know, the, the silly little meme that says something along the lines of tough times breed tough men, tough men breed, easy times and so on. Is, yeah. is that a, a very layman's way of kind of describing what we're talking about? That's, that's pretty much bang on. We are in tough time. Uh, easy easy time. times right now are in the process of making uh, tough men. Huh. And then we have to go through that evolution. We'll reorganize, regionalize it like global supply chain. I, in the army, I did uh, supply chain management for 20 odd years. Sure. Um, global supply chains are not, collapsing they're reorganizing right. we're going back to what was standard for all of humanity which is regional organization <laughs> right um because since the second world war the u.s navy has agreed to police the seas and get rid of piracy and the only agreement was you could do all the trading you wanted to you just had to be on our side against the russians right. well, that all went away in the 1990s which is why if you look at the 90s to about 2020, we had this uh, probably what, thir almost 30 year globalization, amazingly beautiful existence of not only did we have reasonable peace in the world, right. but we had unfettered access to resources, low interest rates, 
money everywhere. Like, you know, just the printing of money was crazy. And now we're, we're in the disruption and the reorganization of that. So let's go back three and a half years. Let's talk about it because I think yeah. we can now on YouTube without getting in trouble. Yeah. How did, how did COVID accelerate this? Because this was, this was a, I mean, this was a, I'm not going to use the word unprecedented, but it was an event that twisted everything, no matter where you stand on it. I just like to hear a scientist, I'm going to call you a scientist because you're prepared in a scientist, but uh, you know, somebody who studies and uses the scientific method to this, how, how did it accelerate some of the stuff you're looking at? I think one of the easiest explanations is uh, we have a world of policy entrepreneurs. And what we refer to those people are is people who have a solution waiting for a problem. And a prime <laughs> example is um, let's bring out the big bad uh, firearms bill and the firearms ban, right? Sure. That was written long before oh, yes, a massacre yes. happened in my home province of Nova Scotia. So those folks are called policy entrepreneurs. They're waiting for a policy window to open some event or something to occur. Wow. So consider the pandemic as a big window, right? Because it really knocked everybody off of their rockers. A big window opens and all of these people with preconceived solutions just got their problem. Right. Just got the reason, right? You know, what happened in Porto Peak in my home province of Nova Scotia had nothing to do with the possession and the use of handguns and semi-automatic scary looking rifles in Canada. But that policy entrepreneur drove through that window with a semi truck and yeah. said, here I am. Here is the chance to do something that never happened. Another great example of where natural disaster does this. Mm. And I'm not supposed to use the word natural disaster because there's no such thing. It's humans live in dumb places. And then when nature does its thing, we get hurt and we blame nature. I agree. That's cool. Okay. Yeah, no, yeah. but all the theoret all the scientists in emergency sure. management hate the use of the term natural disaster, but I can't can't forget, I can't stop using it. But the example I just give is if you look, if you remember back to uh, Hurricane Katrina in 2005 yep. in um, New Orleans, what happened was is they were trying to implement charter schools in the southern US for decades. And they kept failing to be able to get the matter through. So in the U.S., charter schools are where you as a parent will get a certificate. You get to pick which school that serves your children and your interests best. And you use that certificate to enroll your child in it. So it's it's called school choice, right? Yeah. Um, well, guess what Katrina wiped out? It wiped out a good portion of the entire public school system. In one fell swoop, they brought in charter schools. What they couldn't achieve in decades of legislative work, Hurricane Katrina achieved for them in one day. So it was, it was an event. So the pandemic for everybody involved was a policy window open wide open and everybody with solutions came driving in. And so whether you were uh, an investor in Moderna whether you were an investor in Pfizer, whether you were somebody associated with, um, you know, electric Zoom? vehicles, <laughs> like Zoom, Zoom, you know, or uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. If you were a Zoom platform, whatever you were, well, yeah, close. There's a good difference between entrepreneurs who just take an opportunity and jump with it. Yeah. Oh, fair. Right. 
and policy entrepreneurs who want a fundamental structural change in the way society is run. Fair. Yeah. Right. And you saw this with the mandates. Right. right. A lot of people and whatever side you're on of, of the mandates, um, a lot of people saw the pandemic as the perfect exercise and practice run. Sure. How far could we push the population before y'all came for a drive to my hometown of Ottawa? I was just, you took the words out of my mouth. Absolutely. Right. Let's push them until all the truckers get pissed off and show up. Sure. Well, this, this was fair. the point and the policy entrepreneurs, some of them want and believe in far greater levels of government control over what can be said or done in an open, free, and democratic society. The pandemic gave them the opportunity to test and trial run. Hmm. Fair. And the interesting thing about that hypothesis, or I think true statement, is that it really doesn't matter the cause of an event. It's the person in, or the policy entrepreneur is just there to exploit whatever happens. Yeah. Their, their whole vested interest in is whatever is situated. Like handguns is a great, great, yeah. great position in Canada because most people are on clearly one side or the other. You don't have many fence sitters <laughs> on whether Canada is a country where handguns should be legally possessed by the individual. Right. Yeah. You know, policy entrepreneur does on one side doesn't think that should happen. Right. So they've got the legislation written. How do you think the, the bill with all of the all of those caveats that came in that that amendment that was oh, it's been sitting. Yep, that's right. I, that thing has been written for 10 or more years and it gets regularly updated by the policy entrepreneurs waiting to go. And wow. when they got their window, they dropped this thing at committee that was already prepared for them. I mean, the government didn't do it. The policy entrepreneurs did it themselves. And luckily thankfully i'm a proud firearms owner and hunter etc um luckily that got squashed but it was close because the other side of the argument was so woefully unprepared for that policy entrepreneur to show up the ccfr and other organizations did a fantastic job but they were not prepared for that amendment to land in their lap huh no, right I mean, you're right you're absolutely right. I, I think of many special interest groups. So here's one that I, I, I don't I don't shoot down at all, but it's one that deserves to be talked about is something like uh, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, for, for instance. I very much appreciate the work they've done, but they have very much um, pushed their policy onto people or into the government sphere based on certain instances that happen over the years and they continue to to push it up and up and up from there and i'm not in favor of drunk driving don't don't anybody look at that and say i am but i look at that as a group and there's many others you know the the polytechnic group out of quebec you know again it's it's awful i mean i you don't want that shit to happen to anybody no. but a lot of times a person's individual trauma or um tragedy spurs on the need to um to take it to the nth degree does that make a little bit of sense at all it does it's it's absolutely so instead of having really stringent laws on the use of a firearm we just need to get rid of them right firearm bad yes or or car anything it doesn't you know i mean it could yeah, be the lady whose kid lost their eye 
on a uh, retail hook in a, in a grocery yep. store, right? The same thing. Yep. Yep. The same reason huh. why Tim Horton's cups say caution hot. Right. So, <laughs> so I'm just going to put that up. I'm not going to read that out loud. I'm just going to leave that. that That's a fellow uh, Manitoban right there as well. So I appreciate yep. the Martinson family. I'm just not going to read that out loud so somebody can clip it and put it into audio for me. <laughs> and, and nail you with the credit. Yep. Yeah. So, um, I got a few questions here. We'll slide back into it. But um, first off, this one's from K Bonk, and I can tell everybody's digging this conversation, dude. We got to, I, I don't usually say this this early on, but we got to have you back sometime because uh, now that I know, anyway, yeah, it's going to be fun. So yep. K Bonk says, love the 10 legs thing. Uh, which do you think would be the last leg restored? And I bet it's a big, it depends, isn't it? No, actually, it's probably going to be manufacturing. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, because, and, and I only say that because if you think of a service industry and the government supporting the general population, mm -hmm. um, manufacturing is the last thing that needs to be put into place. If you're talking about food safety, the health system, the transportation system, um, et cetera. The reason for that is, is that in, in, in part, part of using the 10 leg analogy is, is your and my exposure to it is going to be different. I live in a city of a million people. That's how sure. big Ottawa has gotten now. Okay. There are people in this city who absolutely have to rely on public transit to get to and from work. If you take down the transportation sector due to something, to me, it matters not. I, I work from my home office. Fair. But for somebody who relies on public transportation, that is a critical failure of government that needs to be restored immediately. When huh. you look across the 10 legs, manufacturing, unless you're employed in manufacturing, but from a government perspective, it's probably the last one that needs to be put up. But again, when you think, when somebody's trying to think about this, this analogy of the 10 legs, what we tell people to do is, is think about your exposure. Because everybody's exposure to each of the sectors of critical infrastructure is going to be different, right? Hmm. Um, if you have, if you live in an apartment, high density housing, right? So you live in sure. an apartment building, you can't have a gas generator. Right. If you have medication that needs to be climate controlled and the power goes out in July, you have a very immediate critical situation to be addressed everybody else is just going to get a little hot and sweaty for a day or so until the power comes back on. So everybody's exposure. I may, I live out in the burbs in a townhouse, right? Okay. I have a couple solar panels. I can keep the basic stuff running for as long as I need. Sure. Like, I mean, the absolute basic, what I refer yep. to as your minimum power profile. Um, I can keep that running for a long time. Somebody sitting in a, a 21st story of an apartment building can't. Mm. Right. So that exposure is, is really indicative of how do you develop your own individual family preparedness plan we recommend has to be in reflection to your exposure to those critical infrastructure because it's the ci going down that causes the emergency so if you understand your exposure to the different ci you understand the risk that you're exposed to and ci critical infrastructure critical, yeah yeah, yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Um, what do I got next here for you? How do we define collapse? Uh, how many legs or, um, I guess I, it, well, I'll let you elaborate. You go ahead. 
that um, I'm not going to give the, the, the it depends answer because the reality <laughs> is the biggest leg in the middle and they're all going to be different size is uh, utilities and energy okay. that is required for the remainder. All the rest of the elements of critical infrastructure, maybe a bit of transportation, you'll be fine unless you have an EV. But if you have a internal combustion engine car, you can probably get around transportation without the power. A lot of stoplights. A lot of intersections becomes four-way stops, but you can still use. Sure. Collapse happens after um, 14 days because the critical infrastructure. So if we think about your water, your sewer, and your power distribution, and your cell phone, they all have certain types of backups that are built into them. And it's going to be to a different degree depending on where you live, who your power company is. So your principal main power towers are, are sorry, cell phone towers will have uh, generator backups. Sure. But somebody has to refuel that generator. At some yeah. point, there isn't going to be enough diesel stored to refuel all of the generators. Right. And then you start to see uh, the restriction for the use of fuels by governments because Canada, like every other government has a, an emergency fuel management strategy has had a lockdown bulk fuel supplies in the country to use them for critical needs. Uh, that kicks in at about 14 days. So that's when the, after that, the pressure in the water system goes down. Uh, you're not going to be able to have water pressure. I'm in a city of a million people. If you can't deliver potable water, you start having cholera, diphtheria, and a whole bunch of other breakout of communicable diseases as soon as you can't provide potable water to the civilization. Um, healthcare, every hospital has got a generator. That's nice. Those generators have to be refilled. Somebody has to drop them. You know, you can't get fuel out of the ground um, without power at a gas station. So the best way to define collapse is the cascading failure of critical infrastructure, which usually begins with utilities and then the lack of utilities over time takes down the rest of your leg. Okay. Um, and after about 14 days, um, now you're looking at long-term rebuilding. And for that, I use collapse. People think of like civil disorder and, you know, sure. apocalyptic type movies. I'm thinking of look at more Oklahoma and it's in George's film. Um, the last house standing. If you think of more Oklahoma where the tornado goes through and it takes out the water plant, it takes out every cell tower, it takes out the sewage treatment plant, it takes out the fire department, it takes out the town hall, it takes out everything. Right. That's a collapsed society. Right. Because the society cannot provide the critical infrastructure to its residents, the society has now collapsed. So that's how we define collapse. Other people have all over YouTube, you have apocalyptic sure. style breakdown. Are, are you familiar with our Canadian brethren who is on YouTube? Um, who's very, very well known. Um, From a the, province next door to yours? That's the one, yes. Yeah, I've been a subscriber of him since he was about 10,000 subscribers. Okay. Have you seen some changes over the years? Oh, wow. Yeah, he got to a million in the way he chose fair yeah no no it's cool i get it and i want to have him on my show i yeah. it's the same as um john wesley rawls he wrote the book yep, i read that book yep okay so i i'm not a big fan of that book 
but I want to have him on my show. It's an okay book, but I, I'm a big fan of a lot of the other ones. So, but I, I don't, I mean, <laughs> me judging somebody's writing ability is like, you know, um, you know, me judging somebody's gymnastics ability, right? It, I, I can't, I'm, I'm, it's not fair for me to judge. It's just personal taste, right? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So that's interesting. Yeah. Um, you need to hear this though. Hunter said he'd put some money down for a class on this exact topic. And, uh, so the entrepreneurial wheels are starting to spin. You need to have some sort. Of, anyway, we need to talk behind the scenes about a whole bunch of things because you've got well, me all riled up. So I'm in the I'm in the process of filming a video course. Okay. So we've been when I say we, it's it's the royal we, if you know what I mean. I yeah, yeah I do it too because we got big heads. No, yeah. I'm just kidding. I understand. Yeah. <laughs> well, sometimes you, I just use we. Yeah, it I sounds know. like I've got a team of 25 people in behind <laughs> me in the basement here. Um, but we're we're filming a um, a video course on preparedness. It's going to be a uh, about a 25 episode course. So basically, it's. Again, it's the research-based, evidence-based stuff, not the apocalyptic, sky is falling, chicken little type of stuff. But for people who are really interested in learning about preparedness in an online course video style environment, yeah, that's we're being filmed and going to release it early in the fall. So we, we, we're doing it. You make sure you let me know and I will promote the hell out of it. And we'll have you, I, yeah, um, we'll have you back on. Probably multiple. And, holy cow! This is great, man. And, I, yeah. and and we're we're specifically pricing that because welcome to entrepreneurial world. The world's not cheap. You have to price certain things. Don't um, don't ever don't apologize no. for your price. No, I don't. I I don't compete on price. I this is why everything that we put out in inside my canoe head will be free and always will be free because that's my community service, right? This is trying to help my fellow man be better prepared to deal with the world. For those that are looking for a, a summation of it, like I've got a book out there that I wrote earlier this year that's out on Amazon. Um, on What's it called? It's called Preparedness Simplified. Oh. Book one, the beginning. It's <laughs> a 50-page ebook that's on Amazon. And that's just, uh, that's taking our basic science that we've come up with. And it's, and it's geared towards people who are interested in the preparedness world, but they're not sure where to start or how to start. And so that's, uh, um, and I'm writing a, on top of that, I'm writing a second book. I understand. It doesn't stop, does it? Well, so yeah, no, no. And it, it's because I, I'm, I'm trying to not counter what's out there in the world, but say, Hey, listen, there's, there's a logical, let's not lose our shit way to, to become a prepared individual and I sell the idea hard that preparedness is free, right? This be, adopting mm. a prepared life and adopting a prepared attitude does not cost you money, right? You don't, you don't need to buy your, your acceptance for personal responsibility for your outcomes is far more important than four weeks of food in your basement. Dude, that's all. Yeah. 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 And even if you do want to do that sort of thing, it can be done on the cheap, cheap, if you really want it to be. But it should, but I argue. Yes. From my, that it should be done in support of a plan that you've written for yourself. Yes. Yes. Because I, I have yeah. four weeks of food because of X that you came up with. Not because some Yahoo like me on the internet said, get four weeks. It's because 
I've looked at the people that I care for, the people that I'm going to be responsible for. I looked at my community around me. I look at the hazards I exposed to, and I've decided that it's logical for me to have four weeks. That makes a ton of world sense. Ton of sense. Yes. Not, not these magical numbers that get thrown out there all over the internet. Did we ask this one? Which no. leg would be the... Okay, good. Because I was like, it was similar. And I'm like, I don't think we caught this one. So wonder which leg would be the hardest to bring back, Hunter asks. So I really think if you put your um, tinfoil hat back on... Yes. It's the utilities. Okay. Because if the utilities go down to one of two things, it's going to take the utilities down past 14 days. And that is either going to be, um, without getting apocalyptic in EMP type sure. event yep um or something along the lines of a cyber attack oh right sure right so a cyber attack from a little building in north korea can take down the epcor grid in alberta right and they don't have to be anywhere near you and then when it comes back online it can be taken down again so the danger with our energy grid is not the fact that it can in my mind it's not the fact that it can be taken down it's the fact that the physical replacement of the principal elements of it is not possible in north america so the large transformers and the distribution system is not made in north america so can i, I can okay so that is an, an oft repeated remark that i hear yeah. and you're 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 a you know, a, a researcher type dude. So I, yeah, that sounded really official. Oh, but, you know. perfect. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. So can you, can you clarify or give some specifics behind that? Because that is one of those things that I totally believe, but I also hear it all the time and never really uh, looked into it a whole lot. And if you can't, that's cool too. I, yeah. yeah. Well, no, it's, 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 and I, and I'm not an electrician or a power distribution guy, but the principle large scale transformers that scale up and scale down the voltage on the lines sure. to your homes. If they're taken out the number of spares that currently exist that we publicly are aware of is far below the expected amount. And this came out of a U.S. Senate report. Okay. That estimated, you know, within nine months, 90% of the American population would be dead if there was a power outage. But the idea was, is they are ramping up the manufacturing in North America of this, but it's very much the transition they're going through now in the uh, computer chip industry. The right, very, yeah. very 10 nanometer level chips or nanomillimeter level chips that are being manufactured in Taiwan, the really expensive, valuable ones are only made there in South Korea, which are a little too uncomfortably close to China. Sure. So the American North American industry is, is building that back up, but that's a five-year game, right? You just can't turn on manufacturing overnight. That's why it's one of the longest ones to bring back if it's totally lost because a manufacturing plant takes a long time. There's there's all the inputs that have to come in. And so we're going to solve this issue really in about five to seven years. Um, we'll have the capacity to rebuild. We won't have the stockpile to replace. Those are two different problems. 
That's really good. But That's now, a whole show right there, isn't it? <laughs> now we don't have either now, but at right. least in five to seven years, we will have the capacity, the capability to construct what we need in North America. And that's what we're doing with the term reshoring. A lot of what we've seen in the pandemic was a great example of this with the production of PPE. Yes. yes. Not only Canada, but countries around the world have realized, you know what? That's probably a thing we should be able to make. Yes. Right. Look at our, um, our, our drug uh, pharmaceutical program. Some, Oh, I think the number was almost near 90%, about 86% of all generic pharmaceuticals are made in India. Yep. And India stopped the export during the pandemic to make sure they could take care of their people. Sure did. Because Whoops. that's what societies do. Whoops. And we would do the same. I don't sure. care about, you know, we can Absolutely take the altruistic. We would do the same. So comp countries are realizing that there's a lot of this, not a lot, but a few critical elements to keep society running that we used to be a lot cheaper to make offshore, but is right. now a heck of a lot smarter to make onshore. So we're reshoring this, but you know, let's just hope nothing bad happens in the next five to seven years. I feel a lot. More, so that report is the one that uh, bill fortune um, uh, one second after. Uh, have you read that book one second after? No, I haven't. No. Oh, I don't know. Are you a fiction guy at all? Oh yeah, very much. You, you, yeah. Um, so I've had him on my show before. It's probably, it's called one second after there's the fourth book's coming out soon, but Newt Gingrich wrote the foreword to the book. If that tells you kind of yeah. where it stands, but it was based on that report. I really like, if you'd only read the one, read that one and uh, he'll be coming back on the show soon. But it, it scared me at first, you know, just the whole idea. Cause that's what I mean, I don't live in fear of an EMP ever. I mean, I just, it's something I know about, you know, but he's a really, that that's his passion to, to, yeah. to share with people. So what it would be, a, what would be a, an example of a modern collapse or a, a, okay. So let me back up a little. So in his book, the big thing was he talks about Katrina and a few others, and he says they were always regional disasters or regional collapses where when there was a hurricane that went through North Carolina, people from, you know, Boston and California came in and helped clear, you know what I mean? Like the, the, the power line guys, you know, or like we send firemen to Alberta to fight the wildfire. So yeah. is there a, a modern example of, and I'm not sure if I'm using your term, right? Collapse that would have been wider, that wouldn't have been necessarily very, very um, contained. So I think the best modern example is the latest, uh, this, oh, I forget the date, the, the most recent earthquakes in Syria and Turkey on the border. Okay. So there is a, uh, there is a portion of Northwest um, Syria that is still hotly contested between the Russian backed militias, the Syrian government, the Turkish backed militias, uh, the PKK and a couple of other free for all wow. groups in there. Okay. All affected by the disaster, right? There's no governance in there. So they still have not done anything to recover from those earthquakes months later because there's no law and order in the area. So whatever order that did existed has now been totally disrupted by the event. In the surrounding area where there was government positive control, you had great responses in Turkey, great responses in parts of Syria. Um, but really poor responses. Um, you can look at 
um, it, it's hard to see in the modern age because we have such great international response to calamities when they happen. But Canada is sitting on a time bomb. If you look at the Cascadia earthquake on the west coast of Canada. Okay. So the Canada subduction zone right now, if that was to go up in what we think is a long overdue major earthquake um, and you have say a 9.0 and you have the one slipping under the other, you're looking at catastrophic destruction on the West coast of North America, which means Canada won't be able to dial 911 for American assistance. Good because point. America will be going to help Seattle, Portland, the state of Washington, the state of Oregon, Northern California, all of that will be in the process of being rescued by the American government and the American military. The Canadian government can't get in. If you look at the Rocky Mountain, Rocky Mountains, and you look at the Fraser River, um, and you just have to look at the floods that happened in BC and what it did to the roads. Absolutely. Um, back in my one of my previous jobs in the Army before I left, sitting on the Strategic Joint Staff in Ottawa, he got access to have a read into some of the government response plans. And uh, we, we don't have a way in. Like hmm. we don't have a way in to help the people in the lower mainland of BC. We just don't. We have to fly into Comox and shuttle everything over on BC ferries. Right. Um, you're looking at, if you want to talk about the value of preparedness in 14 days, it will be at least 14 days before any element of any government assistance can significantly penetrate the barrier that's going to be created by that kind of event. Yeah. So you're it, it, like, like Dixon way said, it'll, it'll shut the area right off. You're absolutely. And so um, part of the problem they saw in Katrina as well is first responders. I have all the time in the world for public sector, first responders, fire, police, EMS, right on. You know what? Same thing happened in Katrina. If my family's at risk, Absolutely. I'm not going to work. No. I don't care what job I have. Right. I'm going to take care of my family. And it happened in Katrina, where within 72 hours, they had less than 50% of the staff showing up for their call because of um, because of what the effects on the family. And um, CBC, as much maligned as they <laughs> it's okay most of the 95 percent of the listeners be like i don't know what cbc is what so. is it but they yeah. have a podcast called faults mm. done by joanna wagstaff who's a tremendous individual she's a seismologist and a meteorologist and she did uh i think it was a five episode series it's it's almost a decade old now but it's still up on podcast um uh, distribution networks about what it would be like based upon their estimations inside the Cascadia zone after it's cut off. It's and called faults. Faults. Yeah. Okay. I'm and gonna put that in the, yeah, I, that's right up my alley. I got it. And that, it. uh, it just gives an example of how precariously our society sits on the edge of significant disruption that 90 odd percent are running around blissfully unaware of of what could potentially happen so from a worldwide collapse really to see collapse of societies you have to go back pre almost pre second world war fair uh because international assistance wasn't really a big thing back then yep you know if if 
French Guiana came apart at the scenes, everybody would go, that's cool. And then they would go back to lunch because they'd be yeah. reading about it a week later in a New York paper. Right. And you go back a hundred years before that, most people were just living a subsistence lifestyle, subsistence lifestyle that yeah. they probably couldn't help even if they wanted to. No, that was all about survival. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Modern people seem to forget that up to about 250 years ago. Um, the starving season of spring was a real thing. If you made it through winter and weren't killed by the weather, you had a pretty good likelihood of starving to death in the spring, waiting for the crop to come in. Sure. That was humanity's existence for 100,000 years until modern agriculture and industrial agriculture comes around. In one second after, he said he has a line that the final act of desperation was eating the breeding stock. Yeah. And I that's as pertinent a line as I've ever heard, because I mean, what do you do? I, you starve or you eat them, but you know, all you're doing is prolonging, right? Yep. And they, there's another great um, saying that I heard uh, somebody, and I'm going to paraphrase it, that uh, man's adherence to the moral code is directly correlated to his access to resources. Sure. Or man's, uh, what's the other one? Um, <sighs> we're only nine meals away from anarchy. Now, I don't like that use of anarchy because I personally self-identify as a, an anarchist, a voluntarist. Yeah. But but the, the idea of societal collapse or anarchy or moving away from social mores, you know, that sort of thing. Well, we, we, you're starting to see it now as we have the separation of wealth and poverty um, in, uh, in society in some parts of the U.S. Um, you start to see people openly flaunting laws. I don't have money. You have money. I'm hungry. There's food in the grocery store. And there's whole, like in Chicago, there's whole YouTube was, channels on having lunch yeah. and uh, having lunch in Walmart. It's going in the aisle and opening the packages and eating. And not on their dime. I mean, on Walmart's dime. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, they're, they've, uh, that is considered a misdemeanor and that's the, the police won't respond to shoplifting calls in certain American cities. So you just go into Walmart and have lunch in the aisle. That's messed up, dude. Yeah. But if you're like, in all seriousness, if you're hungry and you don't have food, at right. what point do you go get the food? Right. Which has always been a prepper um, concern about security in, you know, 30, yeah. 40, 60, 80 days downrange. Um, what happens? What does the world start to look like? when the critical infrastructure is not restored in 14 days. So I am. Um, yeah. Let's uh, let's finish up with it. I'd love to keep you all day, but I think I want to get you to come back so we can, sure. this was anyway. Um, Martinson, Ayn Rand is a big, we're big fans of Ayn Rand around here. Yep. Atlas Shrugged. Have you ever read Atlas Shrugged? Um, or are you familiar with her philosophy? Uh, yeah. I'm familiar with her philosophy. Yeah. I okay. haven't read any of her full works. She, I mean, she grew up in a, in a communist state and then moved to the U.S. And, you know, her basic premise was that, you know, the individual and the drive for success or the drive to do something great is the ultimate kind of thing. But it could be written today. I, I just read it for the first time yeah. a couple of months ago, and it, it could absolutely be written today because a lot of the Walmart mentality you were just talking about. And it's yeah. it's so, OK. 
how do we put a stamp on it? <laughs> what what would your advice be to anybody out there? Because most of the people that are going to be listening to this are probably fairly prepared already. What what would you say um maybe around the idea of looking at your local area? What what would be what what's a really good thing that any prepper out there listening could do to make their life a little bit better going forward? So it's actually the subject of my entire PhD dissertation, which was social capital. Social capital, like financial capital is your money. Human capital is your education and your skill sets. Social capital is your social networks. It's about the relationships that you have. And the true first responder in emergency is not the police, fire, EMS. It's your neighbors. It's the people in your general area. Those are the people who will be the first ones to come help you out. So my research that I did in Ontario in 2020 and 2021 showed that by increasing and investing in social capital, you by default increase the prepared preparedness level of the population. So the single greatest thing you can do to become prepared is go meet your neighbor. Go meet your neighbor. Like good old school 1960s, meet your neighbor. Because when you know people, you not only get access to them and their resources, but you get access to their network. So if you think of all of our relationships as an interrelated web, a mesh web of connections, and yes. you plug into that connection, you now through that individual have access to a greater web. So your community needs to stand up on its own. And when you look at, there's a great uh, professor at a Northeastern University in Boston called Professor, professor Daniel Aldrich. And he's wrote, he's wrote several books on one is called building resilience, the power of social capital. And it's about, he looked at a series of disasters over the last hundred years to try to figure out why certain communities built back better and built back faster. Right. And his research showed that it was, there were two things that were indicative of, of a better post event outcome. One was a strong sense of place. So a strong link to your community, like you, you live in a smaller, more rural town, people know each other. You know, if you picked up the phone, you'd have 10 people with tool belts on to help you on a Thursday <laughs> afternoon, right? Like you have a community building. So places that had a sense of community, a sense of identity and a sense of belonging and those communities that had a strong link with their local government. So had a strong, positive relationship with their local government. So it's the antithesis of what a lot of prepping ideas are, that I'm a lone wolf, I'm on my own. You're actually, if you want to just go with the research evidence, you're better off and your outcomes will be far better if you have strong community relationships and a strong relationship with your municipal government. Not, not provincial, not national municipal so your local town government and you have strong relationships your outcomes will be better so it's not related to your survival skills it's not related to your bushcrafting not related to your days of supply that's in your basement or your jerry cans of fuel in your backyard right it's about community building that's how we build preparedness is get people to get out meet your neighbor and ask that question like I, I was on a podcast for um, this global blue noser network that a guy on you on LinkedIn 
has created of all us expats, blue nosers okay. living around the world. Cool. And we all we all recorded some some answers to some questions about the forest fires that were going on and the wildfires and what it was like to be uh, an expat looking at your home province burning and not being able to help. Um, well, you know, you're a Nova Scotian. You you know what it's like to be a blue noser, right? I we do. got each other's back. We're not worried about that. We will rebuild. We'll take care of it. We'll put it back. That sense of community is far, far more important to your outcome than any supplies or skills you have in your basement. And that's the definitive research. Now, that doesn't mean you don't put supplies and skills and stuff in your basement, but it's the one thing when I talk to prepper networks that I do get an opportunity to sneak into and chat with every once in a while is they have a tendency to have a very closed group of like-minded individuals. You know, so there's five or six preppers in my community. We talk to each other, whatever, but we're gray men. Nobody knows from the outside looking at our houses that we're preppers, but we, we stick together. My research says you need to expand that to the community around you. You need to knock on your neighbor's door. You need to get to know them and say, hey, listen, you know, if those like we had tornadoes go through Ottawa in 2018. Yes. Six tornadoes go through here. Right. That's a perfect conversational point. Hey, listen, are you um, are you are you ready for anything? You thought about what that would be like? Are you are you ready for that? Starting those type of conversations in your community. And I love to talk here, but I'll give you one more example. Sure. Um, this Saturday, I got invited to a community event in a small town outside of Ottawa to just put a table up and, and talk to people about preparedness education. What sure. can we do? So um, it's an opportunity if you're a prepper and you're a lot of preppers don't want to show yep. your face and say, hi, I'm here. I'm a prepper because everybody's terrified. They'll come knocking at your door and go after your stuff when the shizzy hits the fizzy. But um, just getting out into the community and, 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 raising that alarm, being that person to, um, if your government is not doing what you think they should in response to an emergency, be the catalyst to argue with your government for a better response. Hmm. It's one thing over a beer to call them a bunch of whatevers. It's another thing to stand up and present to them a way to, to bridge that gap, right? To be the positive voice in your community to say, that was a shite response the last time around, dude. We have to do this better. Here's how I think you can do it better. And here's the part I'm willing to pay to play to help you do that better. That's how we build um, a sense of community. That's how we build preparedness for build on to folks like you and me that are already pretty much good to go when it comes to events that may occur. But the people around us aren't which that can have a detrimental effect on you if the people around you are not prepared that's incredible i thank you <laughs> that's really good man how do people how do people support you jeff how do they give you money where do they go to see your stuff so inside my uh landing page it has links to all of my social media feeds it has linked to the podcast it has a link to places to buy the book if you want to buy the book and i'm also subscribed to a wonderful um website called buy me a coffee i don't know if you ever heard of it yeah 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 right? so i'm on buy me a coffee so i just say to people listen if you're not interested in the book uh and you're interested in just supporting 
a creator creating good content, just go to the buy me a coffee link and buy me a coffee. I'm powered by wonderfully simple black coffee. Military guy, black coffee, right? Yeah. Too hard to yeah. carry cream and sugar. That's what everybody tells me. That's it's funny. true. It is. Is one less thing to put on my back for 30 kilometer hunt through the woods. Well, thank you, brother. If you, if you want to hang in the back for just a second, I'll be right back. I'm just going to close up the show for you. Yeah, no worries. Thank you. Guys, I, all I can say is once in a while you catch uh, lightning in a bottle and how I didn't know who Jeff was before a few days ago when uh, George from uh, Last Host Standing introduced me. I, I don't know, but we need to support him. His message is incredible. And of course, he's right up my alley. Disaster response and oh, guys, just reach out, follow him in any way you can. I made sure all of his links are in the description below, but what an awesome episode. And I can promise you, if I have my way, we'll have Jeff back on multiple occasions because my brain is just spinning with all the possibilities of uh, getting him back on to talk and pick his brain. So with that, guys, I appreciate you. And as always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. <laughs>